Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. The first part of this, guys, we're going to go through a lot of scriptures, but they're not going to be on the board for a very important reason, and that is that I want you to write down these references, and I want you to take them home with you, and I want you to read them, I want you to study them, I want you to engage with them. Towards the mid part of the message, I will throw up the main thrust of my message, the scriptures on the board, but the, the, the text that I'm going to be going through up front, right off the bat, is not going to appear up there. I want you to write it down. For the next two weeks, we're going to be planting ourselves in Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 13, and then going to chapter 3 and ending at verse 11. And it's going to take a little bit of time to unpack all that Paul is actually saying here. So, uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 13, these are the words of God. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, in the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freedman. But Christ is all and in all. Sometimes when we're reading through passages of Scripture, uh, it's important for us to understand what a person is saying before we can understand what a person is saying. How many of you know what I'm talking about there? For the rest of you that don't maybe understand what I'm saying, uh, there are many times where there's a, there's a big picture, there's a, there's a framework, what we like to talk about in biblical studies or what we like to talk about when we're, when we're looking through the scriptures is there's a context. And in that context, in that framework, everything else flows from that framework. Uh, And what Paul is saying here is really important to get that framework. Otherwise, what we do, all of us do this, trust me, you can be a professional Christian like Nathan, and uh, you still have to do it, right? That was a joke, by the way. Um, But the the idea is you still have to to work through the weeds of Scripture. Sometimes it's really hard to see what especially Paul is saying because he's notorious for run-on sentences. (laughs) He's notorious for adding parenthetical uh, pieces to his statements, and he just kind of runs off this rabbit trail. This is going to be a surprise to you. He never changes his thought. He never goes off on a rabbit trail and doesn't come back. He's always making sense. As a matter of fact, people in his day thought he was hard to understand, and Peter set them straight in his epistle. You should read it for yourself. Peter says, some say that Paul's hard to understand. The problem is they're distorting what he's saying. This is exactly what's happening. It sounds like politics today. Anyway, so, so this, is, this is precisely what's happening. So it's important that we understand what a person is saying before we can understand what a person is saying. Another way that we might look at that is, is that sometimes you have to zoom out. You have to look at the 30,000-foot view or, or maybe a, an analogy that you're familiar with. You have to look at the forest first. You have to see what the landscape is, and then you can move in to the finer details of the trees or a ground-level approach. We actually apply this principle in every area of our lives. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you know this. Maybe you see it. Maybe this is new to you. But uh, your GPS in your car, your GPS on your phone is exactly what I'm talking about. You're able to see the, the big picture map, and then you're able to get directions that are on a turn-by-turn basis. You understand what I'm talking about. So when we're reading through the scripture, sometimes we're confused at the turn-by-turn because we're... we're we're in the forest. Sometimes we've got to jump back and we've got to look at it. It was a couple of, uh, well, it was last year sometime. I, I was about to say a couple of months ago, but this year has flown by and I don't know what happened to it. But anyway, so it was last year and I, and I shared a message entitled uh, Adorn, Adorning the Gospel, what that looked like. And inside of that message, I talked about the importance of, uh, of, of seeing the big picture. And I used this analogy. I said that if you're uh, putting together a puzzle... How many of you need the puzzle lid 
to put together the puzzle? Yeah. Is it possible to put the puzzle together without the lid? Of course it is. Is it terribly difficult? Yes, it's terribly difficult. And if you don't think it is, you should get one of those puzzles that's just a, a giant uh, thing of marbles, all different colors, no box lid, go for it, wing it. I want to see you do it. You know, Just get back with me and tell me how many weeks it took you to put that together. But, but sometimes we need the box lid. This is illustrating yet again the point that I'm trying to make, which is you need to see the big picture so that you have a general idea where these small pieces all fit in. Okay, So with Paul, we need to understand what Paul is saying before we can understand what Paul is saying. And here are the four bullet points of what Paul is saying. So if you're a note taker, please write this down. Number one, the condition that we were in with this relationship or when this relationship began, the status that we had when this relationship between us and God began is or was sinner. Can you say that word with me? Sinner. One, two, three. Sinner. That has become a bad word in the church today. A bad word in the culture today. Now, there's some beautiful imagery that we're going to look at about how we've been clothed with righteousness, how we were dead and now we're alive. And that's an important identity for us to continue to hold on to. But the, the truth in our world is that our world is filled with sinners that need a savior. Is that true? This is true. Now, I have a quick question to ask of you, the saints of God. Do you still sin? Yep. You still sin. Does that identify you as a sinner? That's an amazing, amazing question. Because half the church believes that it still identifies you as a sinner, and half the church simply says, I have a new life, I have new identity, I was dead, I am alive, I have been clothed in righteousness, the Bible says it, and yet, sometimes, what do I do? I go back to that old way. I keep going back to that old way. Instead of being transformed and renewed in my life, instead of submitting to the plan and the work of God, I just jump right back into it. It's my argument that that doesn't make you a different identity. It doesn't make you a different identity. God has declared who you are. You're his children. You are his. That doesn't, by any stretch of the imagination, give you the right to go walking around acting like you're perfect. And like, you do no wrong. We need to be humble as Christians. As a matter of fact, we need to be the first people telling the world we were in need of saving. And we're still in need of our Jesus to return. Amen? So it's a real important thing. But the condition that we were in when this relationship began was sinner. Look at what verse 13 says of chapter 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Barney in his time this morning talked about a, a common practice called parallelism uh, where you might say something in two different ways to communicate the exact same principle. This is an example of parallelism in verse 13. One of the parallels is that you were dead in your transgressions. The other parallel is that you were not a part of the covenant people of God. You were in the uncircumcision of your flesh. You see, God proclaimed, uh, this is going to be a shocker to some of you, the old covenant and the new covenant are both covenants of grace. Did you know that? 
Everybody I know talks about the covenant of the old covenant is a covenant of law, but the covenant of the new covenant is a covenant of grace. Nonsense. You didn't read your Bible in order. The covenant of grace came with Abraham when God said, I'm going to make a promise through you to bless the world. And 430 years after that, God said, here's a bunch of laws, smile. And everybody was like, well, this just makes the whole thing stupid. But... God gave them all these commands. He gave them all these laws, and they were for a purpose. Now, we, we, they were for a purpose. I, I've been in Tennessee for a week. I don't know what just happened, but anyway, they were for a purpose. So we're going to talk about that if we get some time later in the message today. But it's really important for us to get this idea that God has always been a God of grace, okay? And in being a God of grace, he has signs of covenant keeping, have signs that you have entered the covenant. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about baptism, and I told you that we don't believe that baptism saves, but we believe that baptism is commanded, and it's not a negotiable reality in the church, okay? It's not something that you just go, well, I might do it, I might not do it. Any more than circumcision was just a thing you might do. Remember in the story of Abraham, he had to go home and tell his whole household, and there were hundreds of people in this household, men in this household, and he said, God just said something to me. He said, I want you to go home and circumcise your, this entire entourage. Michael Jr., who is a comedian, Christian comedian, does an amazing job at communicating this, but can you imagine what you were thinking, what you'd be thinking if Abraham came home and said, hey guys, we're all going to do circumcision? You'd be going... Um, go get the message right, because I don't know what you're smoking. I don't know what you talk to, but that's not happening with us, right? So circumcision was a sign of the covenant, and it was a non-negotiable. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, teach them to obey all that I've commanded, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not like, well, whatever. Eh, you know what that is? It's a distinct 21st century American attitude. We'll get to it. Maybe if we sort of kind of want to. No. Baptism is a real important thing. Where am I going with all this? This covenant keeping was a sign that you belonged to that covenant. It was a sign, according to the scripture, that you're alive. That you're alive. What did Paul say here? He says, when you were dead in your transgressions or when you were not a part of the covenant people of God. It's the same concept. Now, I'm going to hobby horse on a little bit of a, maybe this is a little bit more heady. I don't, it doesn't take any level of scholarly understanding to get this. I just want to point something out as you're studying. There are people in the church today that believe that when the scripture tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that uh, they promote this idea of we were corpse-like dead, okay? Dead like Lazarus is what you hear a lot. You were dead like Lazarus. There's a big problem with this idea because what they're saying, what, what has come out of this idea that we are corpse-like dead is the necessity to change the order of salvation. Because of their preconceived idea, because of what they're bringing to the text, Corpse-like dead, 
which is not what the scripture tells us, they have to bring something else to the text that changes the order of salvation, which then says a person has to be regenerated before they can believe. That's not what the Bible says. It says that the gospel was proclaimed, you heard it, responded, and you were filled with the Spirit. You came to life. Okay, The order of salvation is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And faith creates this, this thing here is life that comes about from this. Corpse Like Dead misses it on two different points. The, the go-to defense of Corpse Like Dead is Lazarus. But here's the spoiler. Lazarus' story has nothing to do with salvation. Read your Bible in context. It is about a dead man. It has nothing to do with salvation. You will not read salvation language in the Lazarus story. So it's nonsense there. The second piece of this idea is that every time you see dead, you have to think about this. What would corpse like dead mean if we couldn't respond to God? It would also mean you can't rebel against God. Dead is dead is dead. But what people promote is this idea that says this kind of dead allows you to be able to sin, but it doesn't allow you to be able to respond to God. Dead people can't eat ice cream either, right? So dead, dead doesn't work with this idea. So over and over the scripture communicates the idea that what we are is dead in our trespasses and sins. We are out of covenant with God. We are, make no mistake, enemies. And let me put it in another way to you. If all of God's enemies were corpse-like dead, he really doesn't have much of a battle. Okay? He's like, okay, it's done. <laughs> we're already there. Okay? They are dead in transgressions and sins. But guess what, church? This is the position you were in. Dead in your trespasses. Out of covenant with God. Enemies of the Most High. This is where you were when this relationship began. While we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for you. Christ died for you. And guess what love is spoken about in John 3.16? We love to quote this. God so loved the world. Who was the world? A bunch of dirty, rotten, filthy, degenerate sinners. Right? What was God doing in John 3.16? What was Jesus doing on the cross? God was loving his enemy. God was loving his enemy. This is quintessential to the gospel church. The reason why we're at an impasse in the culture today to say you need a savior is because we can't come to the agreement we need a savior. <laughs> we can't come to the agreement we are wretched sinners. So when somebody sins or when somebody is living a lifestyle of sin, what do we say? We say, well, they were born that way. It's just who they are. Doesn't change that it's sin. Okay? It doesn't change that it's sin. Now, we don't have to be the Westboro Baptist Church, who is not a church, mind you. Not a part of Jesus, mind you. We don't have to go with uh, signs out telling everybody how they're all just going to hell right off the bat. We were given a different sign to go out and wave, and that was the sign of the gospel, the sign of new life, the sign of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen? And we're inviting people to that. 
We are, as they, they used to say, we are beggars who are showing other beggars where we found bread. That's simply what we're doing in gospel declaration. But the first thing that Paul is saying before we understand what he's saying is that the condition you were in when this relationship began was sinner. That's point number one. Point number two is but God. I love that point. It's quite an amazing point. But God. Right? Our life is a result of God's mercy, not our merit. Please write it down. Our life is a result of God's mercy and not our merit. Your best, the Bible says, is filthy rags. But the song we just sang said you turned our filthy rags into something glorious, something beautiful. Isn't that amazing, right? Let's look at verses 13 through 15 of chapter 2, and you're going to see the details of what God did. Notice how many times you did something in this section of verses. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So what did you do? Transgress. That's it, okay? You're a transgressor. Now let's look through the rest of it. He made you alive together with him. Who did it? He made you alive together with him. Number two, having forgiven us all our sins. What's the antecedent? He, again, he forgave us all of our sins. Verse 14, he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And I'm going to step back to that in a second. He, was taken, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them. He triumphed over them through Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's what's really amazing. What Paul is saying is, number one, the way you came into this relationship was sinner. Number two, the one who made you right is somebody other than you. So tell me, tell me, please, church. What soapbox do we get to stand on? <laughs> Not even for a second. Because you know what happens when we step up on that soapbox? God gives us a boot to the butt. Right? And we're off that soapbox once again. He did, he did, he did, he did. We came into the relationship centers where our life is a result of but God. And this is an important thing for what Paul is saying. He tells us in this overarching idea, he tells us we were saved from something and we were saved to something. Half of the church stops at this idea of being saved from something, sin and death. But we don't talk about what we're saved to. Because we talk about freedom in a very screwed up way. We talk about mercy in a very distorted way. We were saved from something and we were saved to something. This is very important. So verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 18 communicates this idea. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. And we're going to get into that in, in this week, maybe a little bit later, but most likely next week. He says, don't let anyone keep defrauding you of your prize. You were saved to freedom. Did you know that? You were saved to freedom, from bondage to freedom, from enemy to friend, from captive to free. Right there, we have our freedom. Skip down to verse 20. If you have died with Christ, is that true, church? You have died with Christ. You know when that happened, right? 
baptism. That's what he just said in the last chapter. Or he'll say it again in the next chapter. Right? The idea is you died in your baptism with him and you were raised together with him in life. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to these decrees again? Guess what he's saying? So you were saved from something to something. You were saved from bondage in something that you could not gain righteousness from, and you were saved to obedience in God through the power of his Holy Spirit. You have been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. You have been saved to something. Chapter 3, verse 1 says the same idea. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, is that true, church? Is that past tense? It is past tense. Yay. Okay. So, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. What are you saved to here? Seeking the things above. You're not not saved from your, your past mess and left in it till Jesus returns. It's not what you, this is not how the world works. This is not how the church works. But this is what it's become in the church. We just, whatever, Jesus saved me. I got my, I got my cosmic check mark or my holy check mark. I'm good, okay? So 3.1, skip down to 3 verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died, right? And your life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. You're set. It's It's there. Now, act like it. Verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to consider them dead, aren't you? You notice it says consider. Can you still use your earthly body for things that it shouldn't be used for? Oh, yes, that's not the answer I wanted, but, but that's the honest answer right there. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll talk later. Anyway, so the, the I, sad part was that was my mom. Anyway, okay, <laughs> we're moving on from this, okay? This is, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality. But look at what you're to consider them dead to as well. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And guess what he says all those things are? idolatry, which amounts to idolatry. What a powerful idea. Go down to verse 9 of chapter 3. Do not lie to one another. (laughs) You were not saved, so you can keep on telling nonsense. Do not lie to one another. You're going to continue to press forward in this. Go to verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Go to verse 10. And have put on, okay, so do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and its evil practices. And have put on, what's, what's the truth here, church? We have put on something. What is the something? The new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Did you notice that your new self still has to be transformed? Isn't that an amazing idea? See, the reason why this makes sense of the mystery inside of our Christian experience. We say, if I've been made new, if I've been brought to life, then why do I keep dealing with sin issues? Why is that temptation still present there? And he tells us in 10. He says, because you're being renewed to the true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. 
Do you know what the condition of Adam and Eve were before they bit into the fruit? Perfect. They still fell in that. Can you and I still sin inside of new life? Of course we can sin inside of new life. Not when we've been fully perfected, though. And that's a thing that we're waiting for. That's a thing that we're walking towards. Amen, church? Isn't that a beautiful thing? So when you ask the question, why is the Christian life got to be so hard? Why do I have to face trial? Why do I have to put up with annoying people? (laughs) Because you do, right? Because you are one, right? You, um, you, You have to put up with annoying people. You have to do those things for a really important reason. And that is you're being perfected, church. You're being shaped and molded into what? The image of the Most High God. And one of these days, here's what the scripture says, we're going to know as we're fully known. I'm ready. Amen? I'm ready. Now, God's not as ready, apparently, as I am because he doesn't speed things up as fast as I would like them to go, but it's okay, right? I've got four little girls that I have to teach this truth to. I've got four little girls that I have to equip to share this truth with the dying world. Because guess what? The dying world just keeps going. It just keeps moving forward. And we've got to make sure that we come against that to bring the renewal that God talks about. So we were saved from something to something. So look at these connections here. The condition we were in, the status we were in when we came into this relationship with sinner. But God, point two, our life, our new life is a result of God's mercy and not our merit. Point number three, Paul is saying we were saved from something to something, from sin and to righteousness, from death to life, and the list goes on and on. Point number four, Paul, what Paul is saying to the Colossians is if all of this is true, if this is the gospel, if this is the truth, why in the world would you put your trust in anything else? Why would you say Jesus plus something else would ever do in your life? You know what? We all add something to it, though. We're all pushing in that direction, and I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe it's the temptation of the enemy. According to Colossians, it was the temptation of false teachers that were pushing towards these heretical ideas. But we face that all the time. We're Christians. We're new in our life. Doesn't mean we can't sin. As a matter of fact, we know our experience tells us we continue to sin, but we have to fight against it. We have to resist. And guess what? We have the power to do so. Anybody who tells you that you're stuck in sin and there's never going to be any way for you to ever be out of it now that you've accepted Jesus is selling something. And I don't know what they're selling, but it ain't good. With all this being true, why would we place our trust in anything else? Why would free people desire bondage again? But guess what, church? We're no different than Israel, who took a giant exodus out of Egypt into a promise of new life. Do you remember this story? You guys know this story? 
you know that what was promised to Israel was to come out of slavery, was to come out of captivity, that there was a journey. Guess what we're on right now? The journey. We're in the wilderness. There's a journey through the wilderness, and the wilderness is going to result in a spacious land flowing with milk and honey. You can't paint a more perfect picture to people. And guess what the Christian is called out of? Sin and death to take a journey of of sanctification, of being grown inside of this life, and what's on the other side? Milk and honey. No, Jesus. Okay? Maybe milk and honey. I don't know. But the point that I'm getting at is it's beauty. That's what we're going towards. A relationship with our Father. We're going to a place, uh, we're going to a, a place where God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and He's going to dwell with His people. That's what the scripture tells us. What an amazing idea. That's where we're headed. Okay? But guess what? Just like Israel, we go. Yeah, but there's meat back at home. Yeah, yeah, God, that's, this is a great journey that you've got us on some days. But um, there's meat back at home. We can at least buy shoes back at home. This desert sand's hurting. We don't know what to do. There's snakes out here. Did we tell you that? Running short on water and you keep feeding us with heavenly snowflakes. Uh, we don't know what is happening here, okay? And that's exactly what we do, church, The rich young ruler is the story that gives us the great example of it. Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. I don't want it. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And guess what? Captivity looked better to him than freedom. Why do we do it, church? See, what Paul is saying to the Colossians, so that we might understand what Paul is saying to the Colossians, is fourfold. We were sinners when the relationship began. God saved sinners. We were saved from something to something. There's a promised land waiting for us. And if all of this is true, why would we ever look in the rearview mirror? Why would we ever turn back? Why would we do it? It doesn't make any sense. And yet that's our battle, isn't it, church? I would argue or I would propose today that many of you sitting in this room are struggling with that very challenge. God has called you to freedom. He's called you to life. But there's an area of your life and you're like, I can't give it up. I can't do this. You're a rich young ruler. You're whatever. You're holding on to it and you won't surrender. The Colossians had the very same thing. And that had to do with religious practices. It had to do with Sabbath and uh, new moon festivals. It had to do with all of these things where they thought they were more special than other people if they just adhered to certain practices. And we're going to go in depth on that next week. But I want to encourage you with something, church, that we have got to get ourselves beyond. We have got to, I say that, I say that knowing what I mean. Let Let me correct it now. We have to surrender so that the God who lives within us can move us beyond this this way of living, okay? Nothing we do, I hope you know this, nothing we do is done on our own, right? If it's left just to us, we're like, let's go back to Egypt. It's cool there. But if it's the Spirit of God inside of us, what will we do? We will be like Caleb. We will be like Joshua. We will be like all these people that say, no, we're going. I don't care what the 10 other spies say, we'll go in. Because why? Because God will win our battles. God is our victory. God is the one who loves us. See, this is why in the beginning of the message when I shared with you this first piece, it breaks my heart. 
Church, when we were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God. God fixed it. God canceled it. God redeemed it. God set us on a right way. And God did it at a, at a very, very steep cost. A very, very steep cost. So with all of that said, here's what we're going to do next week. We're going to walk through the challenging passages that we see in what does it mean for no one to act as your judge? What, what does that mean? And what does it mean for no one to act as your judge with regard to food or drink? What, what is all of that about? What's, the, what's this Sabbath practice? What is he talking about? Has God abolished his law or is there something about it that we need to understand? We're going to look into those things. What in the world does he mean by self-abasement or the worship of angels? And there's a fascinating story behind this. So I encourage you to be here next week for that. What does it mean to take stands on the, vision, uh, on, on the visions that you've seen or, or to be in, enthralled with people that are inflated without cause in their fleshly mind? What does it mean? What, what do those things mean? What is Paul getting at? What is he saying? We're going to look at it next week. And then we're going to go even further, and we're going to try to understand what it really means to hold fast to the head. How are we looking to Jesus? How are we pointing our attention to him and only him all the days of our life? Because when we do that, church, listen to me, when we do that, nothing touches us. Nothing touches us. I'm not promoting the nonsense doctrines of our world with the prosperity gospel. I'm not telling you that you will not get sick in this life. I'm not telling you that you'll always get healed or any of these other things. What I am telling you is this, that if you'll keep your eyes on Jesus, ain't nothing got you. Why? Because nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So we're going to look through each one of these pieces, and it is an absolutely fascinating read and a fascinating study. Also in chapter 3, we're going to look into this idea of what it means truly to be raised with Christ, to keep our minds on what is above, and that having to do with our behavior. He talks about uh, leaving immorality and purity and passions and evil desires and greed and all of these things, what he means by leaving those things behind. And we're going we're gonna to wrestle through some really challenging things. Because here, here's what the church should be known for, church. You should be known for holiness and righteousness. You should be known for joy. Does that sound good to you guys? Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.